Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
Today is October 30th, 2022. Tomorrow, the world will be celebrating Halloween, the evening of All Saints Day. And they'll be dressing their children up like little ghoulies and goblins and sending them out to their neighbors to beg for candy. Tomorrow is also traditionally known as Reformation Day. The reason it is known as Reformation Day is because Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. That is the traditional beginning of what we know as the Protestant Reformation of the church. And providentially, I just like it when God does this, we are working our way through the book of Revelation, and in chapter 17 last week, we came across a phenomenally reformed bit of theology, and we didn't take the time to stop and really dig into it more deeply, so we're going to do that this morning. If you came this morning expecting a lot of Revelation future eschatological stuff. That's not what's going to happen this morning. We're going to talk this morning about the very foundations, the very basics of biblical soteriology. There, there's my first big theological word for the morning. Soteriology, uh, salvation, saved. Uh, The Greek word for that is soter. And then you know that if you put logia on the end of any Greek word, it means words about. So whether we're talking about words about God, that's theos, theology, or Christology, angelology, anything else. Soteriology means the study of salvation. How do people get saved? It is a sad reality that in the world today, there's a lot of confusion about how people get saved. And far too often, they will tell you that in order to get saved, you got to do it. It's all up to you. You've got to exercise your will, your determination. You got to get you saved. That's not what the Bible says. And in fact, as we have been going through the book of Revelation, I have been emphasizing how very Jewish the book of Revelation is, but also how it is tied so intrinsically to all these Old Testament prophecies. And so as we've been going through the book, whenever we have bumped into one of those references to the Old Testament, we've gone back and looked at it. But at this moment, where Christ is coming back with his saints, there is all of this very New Testament doctrinal stuff that is intrinsic to what John explains. Remember that John knows all of Pauline theology. Remember that Paul's been dead for a good 30 years by the time John is writing this. He is aware of the doctrine of the church. He is aware of biblical soteriology. And so he just says this in passing and then keeps going like you would already know this stuff. (coughs) But I'm not going to assume that you already know this stuff. Tom, if you would, real quickly, look up Jude 1. You're going to read verses 14 and 15 to us. The rest of us are going to go to Revelation 17. And we covered all of the eschatological elements of verses 14 through 18 last week. 
This morning, we're going to concentrate on the Reformed theology aspects of this passage. I am a great fan of sovereign grace theology. That's why it's on our sign out front. Sometimes that goes by the nickname of Calvinism. Because when you say Calvinism, people get very upset. So I call it sovereign grace theology. But it is actually the theology that grew out of the Protestant Reformation. So that makes this time of year a really important time of year for the church world. Reformed theology is simply biblical theology, as I plan to show you this morning. The biblical soteriology of how people get saved is that it is God, it is all God, it is completely God, it is only God, it is singularly God, and he does it by his power, his authority, his grace. He does the choosing, he does the electing, and it's all grace, 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 and grace. And unfortunately, like I said, so much of the church world has turned that upside down, and I find so much comfort, so much confidence in knowing that it's all up to God. Here, let me explain that one to you. That was my Ricky Ricardo there. Let me explain it to you. Uh, I don't know how much any of you know about me. The more you get to know me, the more you're going to realize that if I get saved, it has to be God. It's got to be grace. It just can't be me. Anybody else care to testify? Because the more you know about you, the more you're going to understand that you're just not holy. You're just not good enough. You're just not righteous enough. If God does not do something for you, then he has to judge you. If he looks at you on the basis of you, your performance, your works, your thoughts, every intention of your heart, if he approaches you that way, then he has no choice but to judge you according to your own sinfulness, your own guilt. You understand that, right? Yes. If you understand that, then the rest of biblical soteriology will make complete sense to you. So let's start reading in Revelation 17, 14, where we read, These will wage war against the Lamb. Talked about all that last week. And the Lamb will overcome them, because he is, after all, sovereign. The Lamb will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, that's what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Last week, we concentrated on the fact that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. But this morning, we're going to concentrate on those who are with him. The first thing you will notice is that it does not say those who are with him are the people who decided to be with him. The people who are with him are the ones who chose him. You don't find that language. Instead, you find three descriptions of the people that are with him. Now, who are these people that are with him? Tom is going to tell us. Out of Jude, the very short book of Jude, which is right before the book of Revelation, it only has one chapter. He's going to read verse 14 and 15 for us. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is the exact same event that we are looking at at this moment in the book of Revelation. This event is the return of Jesus Christ. He is returning to judge the world. He's coming with a two-edged sword out of his mouth. He's coming with a rod of iron with which he is going to smash the nations in order to establish his own kingdom. And in that process, he is going to be judging the ungodly of this world for their ungodly actions. You don't want to be in that group. Instead, you want to be among the ten thousands of his saints who both Jude and Revelation say are returning with him. When we get to Revelation 19, it will become more apparent why it is that the church returns with him at that moment. But look at the way they are described. Those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Let those three words sink in for just a moment. It is no mistake that John said they are the faithful after describing them as the called and the chosen. We're going to spend this morning looking into how it is that people can be referred to as the called and the chosen, and that is the reason that we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin this morning. You can all turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to be looking at several of the Pauline letters this morning. 2 Thessalonians 2. I am going to start reading at verse 1, but let's first lay out a basic principle. In the book of John, we read that Jesus is with his apostles at several different times. Jesus asks his apostles questions like, who do you say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're that prophet. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who replies, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. In that moment, it looked like Peter actually came to that conclusion based on his observation of Christ seeing the miracles of Christ, hearing the teaching of Christ, and therefore he was able to say, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Go, Peter, well done. Jesus doesn't allow Peter, even that moment, to think that he was the one who came to that conclusion because the next thing Jesus says to him is corrective and says, flesh and blood didn't teach you that. My Father in heaven taught you that. The only reason that Peter could recognize who Christ was when he was on the planet was because God allowed him. God showed him. God taught him. God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit. The same thing in John 15. Jesus is talking to his apostles, and they seem to be kind of figuring out who has the upper hand among them. And he says to them, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name of the Father, he will give it to you. So what did Jesus just do? 
I gave you two quick examples of how Jesus placed himself at the center of the religious universe and said, what you think of me is what is going to determine your entire eternity. I have to be at the center of your faith. I am at the center of your religion. I am at the center of everything between you and God. You can't even go to God and ask for stuff unless you do it by my authority. You have to do it by my name. Astounding grace. Jesus allows us to use his name to go to the maker of heaven and earth and ask for blessings from him. It's an astounding bit of grace that Jesus would do that. So Jesus continues to place himself at the center of the entire religious universe. Your entire eternity is based on Christ. Therefore, if you are saved, who saved you? Has to be Christ. Because if it is you, then you just placed you at the center of your religious universe. You decided that it was up to you to get you saved and that you could obligate God to save you on the basis of you. And I know some of you, so just back right off. It can't possibly be you. Okay, I said we were going to start reading in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the first 15 verses. This is the first part of Paul's soteriology, how people get saved. And he's tying it into eschatology, end time stuff. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. How did they come to know the truth? What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I am the son of God. My father in heaven revealed that to you. It's the same with every single one of us. It's the same with every single person. If you know anything about Christ, that is not because you intellectually figured it out. 
It is because God himself showed it to you. And here Paul puts that right in the midst of all this eschatology and makes a separation between all people. There are people who have received the love of the truth. And thank God if you have received the love of the truth. But make no mistake about it. If you love the truth, you received that. That was given to you. That was a gift from God. The reason that you're sitting here on a Sunday morning looking at the Bible, the reason that you're willing to sing hymns and praise God, the reason that you care at all, even one whit, about the things of God is because God did something for you and you received a gift from him. Is that what Paul said? I'm just extrapolating on what the Bible actually says here. So there is this character coming on the planet who is going to fool people with all deception of wickedness and he is going to deceive those who are perishing and why are they perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, so Paul just created a dividing line. And he said that there are people who are going to follow after the flesh, this world, the sinfulness, the depravity of this world, and the reason that they are going to do that and then fall for this deceiver, this lawless one, who is going to rise up on the planet, the reason they are going to follow him is because God is going to give them a deluding spirit so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. Okay, so look at what Paul just did. He just said there are some who are going to be saved. That's God. And there are some who are going to be lost. That's God. Who's in charge here? God. That's a very, very sovereign God. <laughs> That's why we believe in not only the grace of God in soteriology, the grace of God in salvation, but we believe that he's really sovereign in his grace. And he is the one who determines who gets saved. By the way, have I said anything yet that the Bible doesn't say? No. Nope. Then you got to deal with it. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But, look at verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit, and in faith of the truth. Does it say that? That's what it says. Okay, so we're looking at three verses here, verses 11 to 13. Paul just divided all of humanity and said that there is a humanity that is going to fall under the judgment of God. And the reason they're going to fall under the judgment of God is because they did not receive the love of the truth. They did not receive that gift that God gives to some people. Therefore, they are, in fact, going to be judged. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, 
You faithful, you who love God, you are the beloved of the Lord. Why are you the beloved of the Lord? Why do you have love of the truth? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The book of Revelation says that the people who are left on the planet to undergo the day of the Lord are the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. Now, yes, that's all Reformation theology. Yes, that all smacks of Calvinism. And it's also exactly what the Bible says. And it is exactly how people get saved. And it's why John, in very shorthand way, could refer to those people, those saints, those holy ones, who are coming back with Christ as being the ones who were called and the ones who were chosen and the ones who were faithful. Now, look, if I said nothing else this morning, and there's no likelihood that's going to happen, but if I were to say nothing else this morning and you showed up here this morning and you heard that, you heard the best news of your stupid little life. You've just heard that God himself is for you. And what did Steve read just a few moments ago? That was providential. He said, if God be for you, who can be against you? He is so for you that he determined your salvation and wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And that's why you're sitting here. And that's why you care. And that's why you love God. That's why your heart swells when you hear about the grace of God that could save a wretch like you. Or me. Or Micah. I just went with Micah. Two more verses. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Here's another important element of biblical soteriology. God does not just save you and then stamp you on the forehead as saved. He also puts his Holy Spirit in you thereby sanctifying you, hagiosmos. The word just simply means that he's going to separate you from all the rest of this world. This world that's going to be judged, he is going to separate you for his exclusive use. That's why, what did you read, the ESV? Mm-hmm. That's why the ESV rendered the word hagiosmos, exact same word, translated saints, In most Bibles, the ESV went with the holy ones because that's exactly how they are described. They are hagios. They are separated by God. So God does not just save you. He then saves you and puts his Holy Spirit inside you, which becomes a seal, according to Paul, a seal of your eternity. It's a down payment that God has already put in you, guaranteeing you the eternity of glory that he has already prepared for you. That's good news. Yep. Sorry, I got a little excited there. Get all Pentecostal on you. And it was for this, verse 14, it was for this. What? What's the this? Because God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It is God who put that faith in the truth inside you. That is all God's working. That is all God's doing. And it was for this that he called you. That is why 
in the book of Revelation, the saints who are coming back with Christ are referred to as the called. Paul tells us who called us. We are called by God because our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, he effectually calls us to himself, puts his Holy Spirit in us, sealing us for all eternity, producing in us faith and love for the truth. And therefore, because of all that, that is the reason that he called us. And how does he call us? Through the good news. Anybody here in this room at this moment heard any good news so far this morning? Yes. I mean, there's a whole lot of good news going on here, and it is that good news that is in the process of calling you to God. Look, Paul says the same word brings life to some and death to others. Some people hear this news, and they can't get enough of it. Some people hear this, and your heart just swells, and you realize that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter how badly you've sinned, no matter how badly you've rebelled and rejected God, that Christ is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly, and you can have confidence and faith in his finished work, and oh, hallelujah, how great grace is. Other people will hear this same news and say, I don't like that, because that makes God the sovereign over everything, including me. And I won't do that. I won't have this man rule over me. I reject that. It sounds like Calvinism. Da, 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 da. I think I told you one time, story goes way back, but I read some of Ephesians 1 one time to a woman in this case. It just happened to be a woman. The re- you women, just back off me. It was... And I read it to her, and I, I just read it, what it says. I said, do you believe this? And she said, well, not the way you read it. Because some people see what the Bible says, and they just can't help themselves. They reject it. And they say, no, I can't believe in a God who is actually that sovereign, and yet that's the only God of the Bible. And this is what the Bible actually says about salvation. This is a text that is talking about how people get saved, and it describes it as God's sovereign grace in saving people. Nowhere in the entire Bible, check me out on this one, prove me wrong, nowhere in the entire Bible within the context of how people get saved do you ever find instruction about you doing stuff. You choosing, you deciding, you stirring up your own will, you being good enough. You working hard enough, run faster, jump higher. There's none of that. Everywhere in the Bible that talks about salvation, it always says God does it. And you're the recipient of it. And that's why it's grace. Glorious grace. Wonderful grace. And it was for this that he called you through our gospel. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren... Stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught, whether by word or by letter, from us. Turn to Ephesians. A moment ago I said that I had read the first chapter of the book of Ephesians to someone. Okay, I'm going to warn you in advance, if you're not familiar with the first chapter of the book of Ephesians... It does talk about calling. That's why we're looking at it. It does talk about choosing. And guess who does the choosing? God. 
God does the choosing, you don't do the choosing. It does talk about predestination, that very big and scary multisyllabic word that makes people go, oh, I can't deal with that word. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says, and it is all in the context of how people get saved. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. I would love to read the whole first three chapters here, but we don't have time this morning. We're concentrating on why it is that John can say that the saints who come back with Jesus are specifically the called, the chosen, the faithful. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and to the saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So there Paul combines faithfulness with being saints. You can see now why John describes the saints coming back with Jesus as being the faithful. That is a key element that identifies who the saints of God are. They are faithful to Jesus Christ. They don't go chasing after other gods, including themselves. They don't expect themselves to save themselves. All glory, honor, and praise they give to Christ Jesus who saved them. To the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he also chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that's that word separated, sanctified, and will be blameless before him. Okay, so at the very beginning of the Ephesians letter, Paul describes the saints as being those who are faithful to Christ because they are chosen, and they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Let's check. How many of you were here before the foundation of the world to take part in the choosing process? That'd be none. I'm glad I didn't see any hands go up. The choosing, the electing, the determining has already been done. It was done before you or anybody else was here. That's how completely sovereign and completely perfect the plan of God is. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He chose us for himself. He determined our destiny for himself. He chose and elected us and wrote our names down before the foundation of the world for himself. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he is getting great glory out of saving great sinners. Because it's all about his grace and his kindness and his love to those people he has chosen. And he knew, by the way, that you were going to be like this when he chose you. Because it can't have anything to do with you. He, proorizo, it's a word that just means the horizon out in front. He determined the destination. He determined where you were going to end up. And he determined that before he made anything. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of your choice. <laughs> no. According to the kind intention of his own will. 
I am amazed how often in the Bible we read that God is doing all his good pleasure. Even David writes about it. People will say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God constantly is pleasing himself in what he does. He takes great pleasure in saving terrible sinners. I didn't mean to look right at you. Bullseye. Bullseye. Okay, fair enough. And it's all to his pleasure. It's all part of him glorifying himself. He is saving you by his grace because that pleases him. He predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. And what is that redemption? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Why did he forgive us our trespasses? Grace. Grace, according to the glory of his grace. Notice that he did not forgive your sins and trespasses. He did not forgive your rebellions because you cleaned yourself up and got good enough and obligated him. He forgave you because of his grace, because of his kindness, because he is glorifying himself according to the riches, the great treasury of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I like that one a lot. Because if God had been stingy with the grace, it wouldn't have been enough to cover me. I need lavishing grace. I need a lot of grace. I need truckloads of grace. Truckloads of grace. Write that song, Jeff. We'll be singing that next Sunday. He lavished his grace upon us. In all wisdom and in all insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in himself with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. There's your eschatological statement. It's all going to wrap up the exact same way that God says it's going to wrap up. And the fullness of all time is going to culminate in the glory of Christ, which is why I keep emphasizing that the book of Revelation is the revealing, the apocalypsis, the uncovering of Christ. And we keep finding Christ in the book of Revelation Because all of it is going to wrap up with a view to an administration that is suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. How many things does he work after the counsel of his own will? All things. All things. Can you name something that he doesn't do after the counsel of his own will? No, you can't because it's all. It's inclusive. Everything that is, everything that happens, including the salvation of people, is a result of his will. Look, if he hadn't decided to save some people, then we're all condemned. 
If anybody gets saved, it has to be because he's doing his good pleasure, and his good pleasure was to save some people. And if you're among those people he chose to save, oh, how great is that? And all the glory goes to God because it is all grace. I've got to hurry. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, notice that all this predestinary election before the foundation of the world stuff, Paul calls the gospel of your salvation. That's how we know the context is about salvation. That's how we know this is the biblical soteriology. Because this is the good news of your salvation, that it is God who saved you. And having also believed, that is the word peace you owe. It is the base word pistis. It is the word faith. Having then come to faith as a result of God being so gracious to you. That is why in the book of Revelation we are referred to as the called and the chosen and the faithful. All of that is a result of God being really good to you and giving you the ability to be faithful. And after you have believed, is the English word, but it's the Greek verb for believing, peace to owe, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a down payment, as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So why are you being saved? Why are you being redeemed? Why is God forgiving your sin? Why did Christ die as a perfect sacrifice for you? Because according to this verse, you are God's own possession. And he is jealous over his possession. And you belong to him because he decided you belong to him since before the foundation of the world. And he has all the power, which means he can't lose you as badly as you mess it up. And if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not. You mess it up on a regular basis. And I am so glad that he is saving us through the glory of his grace and not on the basis of my ability to maintain it. Am I alone in that? No. Okay, let's wrap it up. Go to Romans 8. What a surprise, Steve. <laughs> let's go to Romans 8. Again, we are concentrating on why the saints that are coming back with Christ, the ten thousands of his saints are referred to as the called, the chosen, the elected, and the faithful. We are going to start reading at Romans 8, 28. Now let's start in verse 26. Just simply because it's just so good. We just, we can't miss it while we're here. In this same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God also helps our weaknesses. Anybody here going to be honest enough with the Bible to say that you're weak? You're incapable? Here, I'll make it easy on you. <coughs> the day is young. It's only 1140 right now. Anybody sinned so far today? <laughs> Really, three people were honest enough in the back to go, yeah, I have. 
The rest of you are doing so good. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> okay, well then, if you sin, it's a Sunday morning. You got up and got dressed for church. And if you still sin this morning, look at how weak you are. Your flesh overtakes you. Your corrupt mind, your depravity is so bad that even in your best moments, you're weak. It is so good to know that the Holy Spirit of God defends us, strengthens us, and makes up for our weaknesses. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, so now you've got the Holy Spirit interceding for you even when you're praying because you just don't know how to talk to an absolutely holy God. You don't have the ability, to, you don't have the capability to talk to an absolutely holy God. Well, fortunately, God made up for that. And by his Holy Spirit, he's got intercession happening for you all the time. And then God who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is And because of God and his Holy Spirit, you are able to go and talk to the creator of absolutely everything. That's an astounding statement because he intercedes for the holy ones, for the saints, according to the will of God. It always goes back to the will of God. It always is God's own pleasure doing what he wants to do on behalf of his people. Okay, that was all free. I wanted to start at verse 28, but that was so good I couldn't just pass it over. How great is our God? How good is our God that he would make up for our phenomenal weakness? And we know, says verse 28. Oh, good. Let's get down to what we know. We know that God causes all things. Oh, remember a moment ago how he made all things and was in control of all things? Now we're being told that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And why do they love God? Because they are the called according to his own purpose. Okay, so it's his purpose. It's his determination. It's his pleasure. It's his sovereignty. It's his power. He's the one who is doing all of it. And part of that grand purpose of God is that he has called certain people to himself. That's why we call it an effectual call. He doesn't call the way we call. Earlier, just before the service, I called Erica to come get to the piano. I know Erica, and I realized in that moment, she might, she might not. She might come join us. She might rebel. We don't know. Why? Because I'm not effectual in my call. I'm suggestive in my call. I give people hints, but I can't make people do things. And neither can you. 
But God, when he calls somebody, it is by his power, it is by his spirit, it is by his authority, it is because he has already written their name down since before the foundation of the world. He's not going to lose them. He's definitely going to get them. That's why we say it is an effectual call. And so those people who are referred to as the called are called according to the purpose of God. And who are those people? Those are the ones who he foreknew in advance And those are the ones that he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. He is the preeminent one. He is at the center of the religious universe. Then look at verse 30. We're talking about that same group of people. The people who are called. (coughs) The people who God foreknew. The people who God predestined. And whom he predestined. Those are the ones he called. And whom he called, those are the ones that are justified. And those that are the justified, those are the ones who end up glorified. Why? Because God does exactly what God wants to do. And he calls certain people. He chooses certain people. He puts faith in certain people by his Holy Spirit. And those people are going to end up in the glory that he has predetermined for them. Have I said anything the Bible doesn't say? No. Then you have to deal with it. And what I mean by deal with it is get on your face. Bow down before the sovereign of the universe. Quit pretending that you did it. Quit pretending that you're that good or that you made some decisive decision. There's redundancy. That you're the one who determined that you're going to be saved. Give up on yourself. Take sides with God against yourself. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you can't save yourself. Admit that you're weak. And throw yourself on the grace of God. Throw yourself at the feet of your Savior. Love your Savior, be faithful to your Savior because he is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly and it ain't about you. It's all about the glory of God who is doing all things according to his own purpose and his own pleasure. Yeah? Yeah. See, here at GCA, we don't say amen, we say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 31, what then are we going to say about all that? If you've listened to what I've said this morning, if you've understood what I've said this morning, how should you react to all that? What are you going to say? You have to say, well, if God's for you, then that's it. Who can be against you? It's God who is saving you. But look at the way Paul describes it. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Freely by his grace, the great glory that he has designed for us. If he has already killed Christ to pay for your sinfulness, If he then loses you, he has rendered the cross of Christ pointless, useless, ineffective. If Christ has already died, 
to save all the people whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world, and then God loses you? How can you describe that? How can you explain that? He's not God then. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-sovereign. And he has negated the finished work of Christ. If you get lost. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's eclectos, God's elect, God's chosen before the foundation of the world. <sighs> Gotta hurry. Look, it's a big bad world out there. I think Steve has already said that. I'm going to make several references to Steve. Uh, it's a big bad world out there. It's a world that hates Christianity. It is a world that is watching you because you claim that you're a Christian and they're going to wait and see if you actually live like a Christian so that they can accuse you. Because if they can accuse you and make it stick, they can feel better about their own sinful selves. But as long as you remain faithful to Christ, then you're like a big neon sign walking through this world saying judgment is real and judgment is coming and they don't want that. They want you to just shut up and go away. And they want to accuse you. By the way, one of the nicknames for Satan, I mean, Satan, the accuser, that's what it means in the Hebrew. But one of the names that he is given, one of the descriptions he is given is that he accuses the brethren day and night in the high court of heaven, accusing you. Okay, so quick. If Satan wanted to accuse you, has he got anything? Yep. Yeah, he's got a bunch of stuff. I know this about me, that when he accuses me to the Father, he's usually right. And so it is so good to know that no one can bring a charge against God's elect. And why is that? Because God is the one who already justified us. God already declared us forensically saved, redeemed, forgiven and eternally his and if God is the one who justifies us and somebody can bring a charge that would undermine that then really how firm was God's justification I mean this is why it's so important that we read that God never changes there's no variableness no shadow of turning once God declares you justified you're justified that's that's it that's the end of it but even beyond God justifying you it is Jesus who died for you Amen. if Jesus already died for you and if God already justified you how saved are you how are you going to lose that salvation who is the one who condemns us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who has raised again, and who is sitting at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. John writes in one of his epistles that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word is lawyer. Our lawyer is the judge's son. Pretty good deal. Our lawyer, when we sin, pleads our case based on his own finished work. This just gets gooder and gooder. 
He was raised from the dead and he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril or sword? No. Because it's already written in God's word for your sake. We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death or life or angels or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. By the way, if no created thing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, you're among those created things that can't separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's really, really good to know. Okay, that was all introduction. Now we can... 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not... Many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world present, that'd be me, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong, and he's chosen the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man can boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. How'd you get in Christ Jesus? His doing. It's his doing. It can't be your doing. We are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord that's why God's doing everything the way he's doing it so that our boast our bragging will always be about God and not about ourselves where does your righteousness come from from Christ Jesus where does your sanctification your separation come from from Christ Jesus where does your redemption come from from Christ Jesus Revelation 17 Verse 14, these armies of the world will wage war against the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords, because he is King of kings. And those who are with him are the called. Do we know what that means now? Mm-hmm. The ones who are with him are the chosen We know what that means now. It's completely consistent with all of the biblical soteriology. Those that are with him are faithful. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Faith is a gift from God, just like grace is a gift of God. 
Just like salvation is a gift of God, everything that you've gotten from God, even the knowledge of God, is a gift of God. It is all grace, 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 grace. That is this year's Reformation (coughs) message out of the book of Revelation. Don't we serve a great God? Yes. It's just astounding what he has done for us. And I have no problem getting down before that God, thanking him, praising him, marveling at the fact that he would save someone like me. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.